0: This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is the full story, newsroom edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. As of recording, the sun has set on day 20 of the conflict between Israel and Hamas, which began on the 7th of October when Hamas gunmen poured across the border, killing 1,400 people, mostly civilians, and kidnapping 222 others. Since then, the Gaza Health Ministry, run by Hamas, says Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 6,500 Palestinians, including more than 2,000 children. Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is in the US at the moment where at a joint press conference, US President Joe Biden, who has expressed his longstanding support for Israel, called for an immediate end to Israeli settler attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank.
1: I continue to be alarmed about extremist settlers attacking Palestinians in the West Bank that uh, pouring gasoline on fire is what it's like. This was a deal.
0: Albanese also announced an additional $15 million in humanitarian aid for Palestinian civilians.
2: This adds to the $10 million Australia has already committed and will help deliver life-saving assistance such as emergency
3: water and medical services.
0: So how has Australia responded to this conflict? And are the Coalition's accusations of division over Australia's response justified? Today, I'm talking to National News editor Patrick Keneally and political editor Catherine Murphy about what Australians need to know about the government's position on the ongoing conflict in Israel and Gaza. It's Friday, the 27th of October.
1: Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
0: Good morning, Patrick. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Murph. Good morning, my dear. Is this your first uh, newsroom edition? Uh, Yes. It's your second full story of the week, but your first new (laughs) edition. Welcome. I feel very privileged. Thank you for having me on. It's great to have you. On Wednesday this week, Richard Miles announced that Australia would be sending a significant contingent of support to the Middle East. Murph, what does that mean and why are they doing it? Well,
2: I think this is standard practice to the extent that obviously it's a very combustible and dangerous region at this point in time. We've basically pre-positioned three aircraft and a number of personnel servicing the aircraft. Now, the reason for that is obvious. In the event that things escalate even further and evacuations are required, we want our own assets in the region to be able to scramble people out of there as quickly as we can.
3: Yeah, we know that there are a number of dual citizens still in Israel from Australia. There's also about 50 or so Australians that we know about in the West Bank, a similar number in Gaza who are unable to leave at the moment. Some Australians have left the West Bank via Jordan. But in the surrounding region, and I guess if there are fears that... There is a region-wide conflict. There's many more Australians who potentially caught up. In Lebanon, there's 15,000 Australians, including dual citizens, and there will be Australians in Egypt and Jordan as well. So the government must be looking at all of this and thinking, we need a backup plan, we need plans in place, and we need to be able to react quickly if there is a wider conflict.
0: This week, the Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza.
3: The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence.
0: And said that no party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law.
3: But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas. And those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people.
0: Where does Australia stand on this? Well, I think where
2: Australia stands on this, Gabs, reflects events, reflects changing events. As the situation in Gaza deteriorates in a humanitarian sense, Australia is uh, being more forceful about language around the importance that international law is respected and that civilian casualties are are minimised. So the Prime Minister's line on this consistently has been that Australia abhors the loss of all innocent lives, be they Israeli or Palestinian, and Australia has become... Well, uh, funnily enough, Gabs, we could start at the beginning and the silly political debate that sort of happened about the word restraint... Penny Wong, using the word restraint from the get-go, mm. right from the, the opening of this conflict, Penny Wong, the, the Australia's foreign minister, urged restraint on the part of all parties, looking ahead, looking at what would likely occur. Mm. And in terms of the language, yes, it's basically the formulation of the government is that, yeah, we poor all civilian casualties, regardless of where they are, and also, you know, that international law needs to be upheld.
3: And I think also Penny Wong's been quite clear and the Prime Minister has been quite clear that Israel has a right to defend itself.
2: I again say we stand with Israel. We reiterate Israel's right to defend itself. We unequivocally condemn Hamas for these evil attacks.
3: And Richard Miles this week on the radio was pressed a number of times about whether he thought that Israel's cutting off of Gaza amounted to collective punishment and he was seem to be unwilling to get into the position where you're making judgments from the other side of the world about exactly how Israel was conducting its campaign over there, while at the same time being quite clear that he believes that the rules of war should be observed and that everything possible should be done to minimise civilian casualties.
0: Just touching on what you said there, Murph, Susan Lee did accuse the Albanese government of deep division and confusion over its official stance towards this conflict after Ed Huzik said Palestinians were being collectively punished for Hamas's barbarism.
3: I really do feel that uh, the uh, there is an obligation on governments, particularly the Israeli government, to, as we have said, follow the rules of international law.
0: But is it division at all? No.
2: <laughs> this is it it's very silly this and enormously frustrating that the whole sort of manner in which the Middle East conflict is discussed is sort of in these kind of binary cartoonish tropes, rather than reflecting a complex and nuanced reality on the ground. Look, there's certainly a spectrum of language, and Pat alluded to that a minute ago. Obviously, Richard Miles is less inclined to talk about a collective punishment or the spectre of collective punishment in Gaza than you know, Ed Husick is or Anne Arley is, but that doesn't mean there's a division in the the position. And this gets even more ludicrous when we think about divisions because even though we've sort of had this sort of partisan standoff around how we explain the conduct and how we refer to various things, uh, listeners need to bear in mind that the parliament passed a bipartisan motion. All parties signed up to it. Well, the Greens had their own position, but in terms of that major party dynamic that I'm talking about, the silly conversation, the parliament passed a motion calling for the protection of uh, against c- civilian casualties and the observance of international law. So it's sort of like everybody... Everybody in the parliament doesn't want there to be civilian casualties. Everybody in the parliament wants international law to be observed. It's just a question of how specific you get in your language, but everybody supports the same principles.
0: And language matters, doesn't it, Patrick? We've seen the Islamophobia and anti-Semitic attacks increase since this conflict began. Is there something about the language our leaders use that can help, like, inflame or diffuse that?
3: Look, certainly leaders have an obligation to bring down the temperature of this debate in Australia. We are. It is quite a strange experience to be watching some of the things that are unfolding in the Middle East from a country on the other side of the world where things are so much safer and so much more secure. But temperatures are running high, particularly amongst um, communities, Jewish communities, you know, Islamic communities in Australia, particularly in Sydney where there's big groups of both communities. And you saw the ASIO boss out this week reminding everyone, including politicians, to be careful of what they say because, as you alluded to, words do matter. And we saw at the start of this conflict the the protests in Sydney where there were, you know, anti-Semitic slogans that were hurled coming from an unknown number of protesters. And nobody really wants to see a repeat of that. So I think... Most politicians realise that it's incumbent upon them to to bring down the temperature of this debate.
0: Do you think that's happening on a federal level, Naf?
2: I think slightly, Gabs. We're seeing a slightly less silly debate uh, this week than we saw last week. I think people are bearing in mind the combustibility of the environment and the sensitivities of the diaspora communities that Pat just referred to. It's not without silliness, the debate, but I think actually the, if if I think about it, I think the temperature has actually dropped a few degrees this week in terms of how these issues are being prosecuted.
3: I also think that Anne Ali and Ed Husick's intervention talking about what was going on in Gaza and framing it as collective punishment actually, in a way, helped because it represented a significant portion of the community in the diaspora Palestinian community and representing their point of view, which wasn't necessarily heard on a national stage Mm. and as prominently as they would like to be. And we saw on the weekend another rally for Palestine and against the attacks on civilians there, and that was conducted very peacefully uh, and it had a wide cross-section of the community. You know, you had not just uh, members of the... Palestinian Islamic community, you had church groups and um, peace activists all there protesting quite peacefully. So, An Ali and Edith Usyk's position is by no means a, a fringe policy and, and it's really very mainstream.
0: Patrick, this term Labor has made some changes on their position towards Israel. What are they and why did they make them?
3: Well, as our colleague Dan Hurst revealed, Labor reversed a decision by the coalition to recognise. West Jerusalem as the capital, and relocate our embassy there. So that was a decision that was made quietly, posted on a DFAT website and uncovered by Dan Hurst, and that caused a bit of a storm of controversy around it. Murph, I don't know if you want to go into that.
2: Yeah. Well, look, it's 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 a funny sort of tale that I think you're sort of asking a broader question, Gabs. So why don't we why don't we go broad and then and then go and then go into the West Jerusalem case study? Yeah. Uh, you said you know Labour has sort of made some changes to the policy position about the Middle East, and that's certainly right. But that's sort of over a span of time. What's happened is that Labour has faced internal pressure to be uh, more positive about Palestine and this reflects the changing nature of the communities that Labor represents. It also reflects events, Gabby. Like we've had periods in Middle East history where we have been in a posture where peace seemed not probable but possible (laughs) and then we've been in other periods of history in this region where peace has seemed absolutely impossible and behaviour is escalating on on both sides. And I think sort of Labor's position obviously is connected to and tied to events and the changing nature of events. In terms of the whole West Jerusalem saga, I mean, that was a funny one. As Pat says, Daniel Hurst, enterprising chap that he is, uncovered this change of language on, on the DFAT website. Now, it wasn't a surprise that Labor was going to change The position because if we just step through this very quickly, the history of the West Jerusalem thing, what happened was Scott Morrison proposed moving the embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to West Jerusalem in the middle of the Wentworth by election. If people remember, Wentworth is a constituency with a large. Jewish population. He changed it because that reflected a position that Donald Trump had at that time, and it was popular in kind of right-wing global circles, that this was this was a sort of article of faith where the embassy needed to be. Labor was clear at the time they were going to undo it, but it was undone, as Pat says, in a very disorderly way. <laughs> the language changed on the website. There was a cabinet conversation. The government sort of did the technical thing, wasn't ready to announce it. Daniel Hurst, fantastic bloody reporter that he is, said, boom, this is done. Boom, they had to stagger out and announce it. And they had to announce it on a Jewish holiday, which is why there was this fracas afterwards. Anyway, that's a big history lesson for people. Hope you had a cup of tea before you listen to that.
0: <laughs> I think our <laughs> listeners will find that very interesting.
3: I was going to go slightly further back in history, but I think part of the silliness of the coalition's campaign to paint Labor or the ALP in some way has been anti-Israel is that there's been such a long connection between the ALP and the modern state of Israel dating all the way back to Doc Evert in, you know, 1948. I'm
2: glad you brought Doc Evert into this, Pat. It's important.
3: Well, he's a fascinating character and, um, you know, he was the I think the third Secretary General of the United States United Nations, a former high court judge, really key figure in the Labor Party. And he actually brought on the debate in the United Nations for the establishment of Israel and partition of Palestine. And all the way through, all the way to Bob Hawke, you know, Labor has been very much involved in, in Israel and supportive of it. I guess, as you referred to before, uh, things ebb and flow at points we're closer to peace. I think um, certainly with the first intifada in Israel, people did Within, I guess, trade union movements and the left of the party began to ask questions about Israel's conduct in some of these um, conflicts and it became a little bit more nuanced, the view amongst uh, the Labor rank and file.
0: And DFAT has also made some recommendations about the use of the term occupied territories.
2: Yeah, well, this is another moving part. We've sort of it's been a consistent theme in our conversation this morning, right? Like obviously positions reflect events. Mm. Uh, positions that governments take or political parties take also reflect advice. We were in a cycle in the Middle East where there was concern about settlements and officials in the Department of Foreign Affairs you know, deliberated about this, the government deliberated about this and the language changed to reflect what the government felt was a better reflection of, of events, that there were problems with settlements, that there were issues with settlements and that uh, various territories were occupied and officials suggested the change in advice and the government changed the language.
0: Our foreign affairs and defence correspondent, Daniel Hurst, had a story this week that Australia has approved 322 defence exports to Israel in the past six years. The Greens say they fear that some of this material may be used in the attack on Gaza. Murph, what is this story about and how much do we know and what do we need to know?
2: We don't know a whole lot, really, is is Mm -hmm. the main problem. Uh, We could have exported walkie-talkies or can openers to Israel, for all we know. Obviously, it sort of comes under the banner of a defence export, so it's it's, it's defence or defence adjacent. There isn't transparency around these kinds of exports. We obviously know where things are going to, but we don't know much about the what in terms of what the material is. So, obviously, it would be better if there was more transparency around this.
3: Yeah, I tend to agree with Murph. You know, the, the problem here is the lack of transparency. In terms of the volume, this would be a very tiny amount of uh, the, the weapons which are involved in the conflict. Israel has a huge defence industry of its own. It is also receiving armaments from the US in in. Entirely mind numbingly massive volume. So, the actual material difference of Australia supplying weapons to Israel is not going to make a great deal of difference, but we deserve to know a bit more detail about what exactly is being sent there.
0: As we speak, Anthony Albanese is in the United States with President Joe Biden. How much of Australia's relationship with Israel is dependent on Australia's relationship with the United States? So,
2: Anthony Albanese is in the United States. The United States is a staunch ally of Israel. That's all true. But I think if we read the play, if we sort of look at the nuance in the play, in terms of, and by play, I mean what politicians are saying, what figures are saying about the conflict in the Middle East, it looks to me that Biden is doing absolutely everything he can to counsel uh, the government of Israel not to overreach in this conflict, while coming out and expressing fealty to Israel as a very important and key ally of Israel. I think Biden is also a force for trying to counsel the Israeli government, think about this over the medium term, think about this over the long term, do not overreach here because this will obviously rebound upon you. I think we've seen Biden sort of make some quite explicit observations about that over the last week or so that have been really interesting. In terms of how, how this plays back into Australia, well, you know, let's be clear for the listeners. Australia, despite the long history, uh, we are not a player in Middle East politics, globally, we are obviously in our own region. We are called upon for our insights uh, and our lived experience in the region, and we're a middle power and we're taken seriously at the global level. But Australia is not not a player in Middle East politics.
3: That's what I find so ridiculous about this whole conversation is that you know the coalition picking up. Penny Wong on one particular piece of language or the timing of it, it doesn't matter in the broad scheme of Middle East politics. No, no one's looking to Australia for directions no. about how they should approach the, the war in Gaza. It's, it's not, it doesn't come into anyone's consideration.
2: Exactly. Exactly. We, we're just not a force here. I mean, the Prime Minister, our current Prime Minister has had trouble getting Benjamin Netanyahu on the phone. It's kind of like, oh, is that Austria calling? Oh, no, <laughs> Australia. I mean, look, it's sort of ridiculous, right? But obviously what the Australian government does, how it conducts itself and, and what it does or does not commit to in terms of some hypotheses about the future, we obviously take our cues from the United States. So, you know, it's all sort of interlinked, but, you know, Australia's role in all of this can be oversized in the telling.
0: And Albanese did announce an additional $15 million in funding for civilians in Gaza in humanitarian aid.
2: This adds to the $10 million Australia has already committed and will help deliver life-saving assistance such as emergency water, and medical services yes, we are upping our contributions of aid, uh, largely because the situation in Gaza is you know, is getting worse it 's getting worse, and people innocent people are caught up in that conflict, so obviously the, there 's been a whole debate at the international level about how aid gets in and what corridors are established in order to facilitate that and and we have increased our contribution uh, in order to try and bring some relief to citizens who are in the middle of this dreadful conflict.
0: Obviously, war reporting is an extremely difficult thing to do, Patrick. But what steps do we take to make sure we get it right or as right as possible?
3: Look, no doubt it is very difficult and I would say from the outset that I'm on the national news desk here. I'm reporting events in Australia, so I'm not involved in our coverage of of Gaza. We have The Guardian globally has reporters on the ground in the region and they're doing fantastic work and you can read it on theguardian.com. But I think it's difficult for everybody involved because we need to stick and, and we do try as much as possible to be transparent in what we know and what we don't know, and it's important to stick to what we can establish as absolute facts. And where we don't know something, and just be open about the fact that we 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 haven't established the truth of of certain claims and catch it in that in that form. Obviously, this week has been difficult because of the reporting over the blast on the hospital in Gaza. There are a number of outlets that uh, reported that as an Israeli attack on the hospital. In the first instance, which was later serious doubts raised as to whether that was true, the New York Times has done a big editorial mea culpa over that one saying they should have checked further before reporting it. that as the fact. But, look, it's a very, very difficult situation, complicated by the fog of war, complicated by the facts that it's very difficult to get anything out of Gaza. Look, it's not a situation that's easy to report on.
2: Yeah, just a couple of observations to that, Gabby, if I can. Please do. Pat's exactly right. It's uh, obviously, you know, we in this conversation, we're a long way from the front line of the reporting, and I can only just express my professional admiration and gratitude to our colleagues in the field who are doing their best uh, to bring us the truth from this conflict, uh, you know, taking enormous risks in order to do that. I'm incredibly grateful as a reader and as a professional colleague. I think. What we should say about this is that it is extremely difficult to get to the truth in war, even in politics. It's Mm -hmm. difficult to get to the truth sometimes, but we have to get to the truth as best we can. And the difficult thing for us in this era of the media is that getting to the truth takes two things that this era fundamentally lacks. The first is limitless resources in order to be present, verify, witness, double verify right? Resources, we all lack them. And the other thing that's required to get to the truth is time, oodles of time Mm. to check, verify, check again, get a new witness, whatever else. You know, the media cycle moves so fast and uh, demand among readers is rightly, you know, enormous for getting facts in real time, getting information put in front of them in real time. But when the situation is as complex as this, sometimes that real-time imperative is our enemy as a profession in terms of verifying basic events. Sometimes we have to move more quickly than than we should. So in that context, obviously there has been very reasonable questions about the reporting of the hospital blast. You know, that's a fail, but it's a fail that takes place in a context, and I just wanted to share that context with the listeners.
0: Mm, And in a way, the... The As you described it, Patrick, the Mayor Culper from The New York Times was refreshing because remaining accountable for our actions is more important than ever across the whole industry, not just The New York Times, not just The Guardian, every media organisation. And I mean, you've written a lot about this, haven't you, Murph?,
2: oh, I'm kind of semi-obsessed with this. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> like we are, we do we do have to be transparent about our methods and we do have to be transparent when we get it wrong, because we are humans. I mean, this is why we love being journalists, right, Guys, this is why we love it, it's the human. Is
0: it? It is. Well, Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> I,
2: yeah. well I think it is. I think it's the human I think mm. it's the human endeavor. It's it's human voices, human stories, human observations, all that stuff. And and we, you know, we we're, we're humans. We're flawed. We make mistakes. We're not perfect. We're not omniscient and we're particularly not perfect and omniscient in the conditions that are prevailing in the Middle East at the moment. We're doing our best and I think some of the reporting frankly has been stunning. Absolutely stunningly good. And it is so difficult to report in those conditions. But I think, obviously, we need to try and get it right and we need to own it when we get it wrong.
3: Can I just mention one more thing, which I think has been really important for reporting from Australia of events in the Middle East, we've spoken to families both in Israel and in Gaza and on the West Bank, Australian families trying to get out, Australian families who are stuck there amid bombing, amid rocket blasts. Um, And I think that's a really important way of actually telling the human Story and the human cost of this conflict is by speaking to people on the ground and speaking to Australian families over there brings a context that makes it more identifiable or makes it in some way more empathetic for readers over here to be able to understand what they're going through.
0: Next, a place and a force of nature. now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Patrick, did you have something to cheer us up? There hasn't been
3: a lot of joy in the news this week. Uh, it's been a particularly grim week of news coverage. But there was one thing this morning which sort of brightened my mood slightly, and that is Kangaroo Island, which uh, went through the ringer, during the bushfires, thousands of hectares of bush burnt out, has now been named Lonely Planet's number two destination in the world um, because of the beauty of its beaches and wildlife and um, it's just apparently a great place to go on holidays. I've never been there, but uh, I think it's going to be next on my travel list. Have, um, I.
0: have you been,
2: Murph? No, never been. Would love right. to. We'll never add been. it to our
0: bucket list. Exactly. <laughs> Was there anything that cheered you up at all this week, Murph? Well, yes, but the,
2: but it wasn't it wasn't a story that we could all consume. Uh, sadly, but I'll just bring this to the listeners, and maybe you've got to be a politics obsessive like myself in order to find this funny. Uh, but in reading many many transcripts from uh, the Prime Minister's trip in Washington this week, uh, there was a, an event where the U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina. Ramondo was present, and anyway, it was an event about critical minerals, that doesn't matter, the context doesn't matter, but she just, <laughs> in her remarks, uh, she described Kevin Rudd, uh, Australia's former Prime Minister and now resident ambassador in Washington, as a, quote, force of nature. <laughs> she added very quickly after this observation that Kevin Rudd was a, quote, force of nature, she said, I feel very lucky to be able to work with that force, and I thought... <laughs> Gina, you're one of us. You've seen it. (laughs) It's kind of like you have entered... You've entered the fraternity of people who have been in the presence of Kevin Rudd, and I <gasps> laughed out loud. Yes.
3: At least more. it's more um, complimentary than what was uh, Donald Trump's description of uh, Pratt this week, uh, which I don't know if we can repeat <laughs> on this podcast. But.
2: Red-headed weirdo. <laughs> no, no, we better not. Well, exactly, you're surrounded, <laughs> sorry. Two out of three of us are red-headed, red-headed weirdos
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> From Australia. <laughs> from
0: Australia. <laughs> um,
2: exactly. You know, and Patrick Keneally comes from a long line <laughs> of red-headed weirdos, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying, gotta be careful with the redheaded weirdos. But yeah, I really did laugh. I don't know, like I said, perhaps you've just gotta be as into politics as me, but I could just see I could just see the US Commerce Secretary <laughs> encountering Kevin Rudd and and reaching that conclusion.
0: Well thank you so much for joining us today, Patrick. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Murph. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Full Story has published several episodes on this conflict from Today in Focus who are speaking to reporters and others on the ground in Israel and Gaza. Please listen back to those to hear more about the conflict and check out the Today in Focus feed for even more reporting on the war. The Guardian is also running a live blog every day from the conflict. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producer was me, Gabrielle Jackson. Thank you as well to Bonnie Malkin. Full story will be back in your feed on Monday. We'll see you then.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free